As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer 101, the podcast where we scratch the soccer itches you never knew you had. The Premier League is regarded as the global gold standard for domestic soccer. It has the most fans, the most money, and the strongest brand of all the world's top leagues. But how did it come to be? How did it get so powerful? And what does the future hold for the Barclays as soccer's top dog? My name's Ryan Bailey. To help me explore this question and many more, we have Mr. Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. And we have Mr. Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Hello, Graham. Now, uh, Graham, you were of an age where you may remember the uh, start of the Premier League, its inauguration in 1992, and the fanfare around it, certainly in the UK. This is, of course, uh, when Rupert Murdoch invented soccer. That is to say, uh, <laughs> he helped launch the Premier League uh, with huge backing from his Sky TV network back in 1992. Now, to give some context around the very start of the Premier League. It came at a time um, when English soccer didn't have a very good reputation. It was almost a means of sanitising English soccer and turning it more into the glossier product that it has become. So there were lots of innovations from, from Sky TV when they sort of heralded in the Premier League. Um, they started broadcasting games on Sundays and Mondays, very much like the NFL model with Monday Night Football coming in for the first time. I remember, Graham, I don't know if you do, but they had cheerleaders at yeah. every stadium for the first few games until they went, this is too American, and they stopped doing <laughs> that for a while. But it was this sort of full glossy production that we'd never seen before at this level, uh, it's certainly maybe in European soccer, in European sports as well, um, this this uh, n- desire to make it more of an entertainment product. And I remember back then, our family actually bought Sky, uh, which was like the equivalent of, I don't know, like your direct TV dish. Um, we bought a Sky satellite dish back in 1992 because the Premier League was coming and many other people did it. Very few people had the cable TV equivalent back then, but it was a huge, huge draw that all these Premier League games, all these top-level games were coming to TV and you could watch them live. This was an absolute game-changer back then. And as I mentioned, it came at a time when 
English soccer's reputation was quite poor mm-hmm. as well. We had the hooliganism of the 1980s, um, the Hillsborough disaster in, in the late 80s, and the Heisel disaster before that, with, uh, of course, all English teams being banned from European soccer due to what happened at Heisel. Um, there was old, decrepit stadiums. There was, you know, much standing um, pre-Hillsborough rather than, you know, uh, multi uh, all-seater stadiums, I should say. It wasn't really a safe place to bring your family arguably to a, to a regular soccer game in England before the Premier League it's not like um, the more sanitized sport experience that we're used to these days Graham but um, maybe you speak to that a little bit the start of the Premier League and what many people don't realize that it was a breakaway league yeah so the inaugural season of, of the Premier League started in 1992 before then you had the the top division of English football as part of the English Football League structure and it was called the the first division as that name would suggest below that you had the second division third division and so that was the English Football League pyramid and as you say the Premier League was a breakaway league and while the mobility between the divisions was retained meaning that you could still gain promotion to the Premier League you could st- you could still be relegated from the Premier League and it also had approval from the Football Asso- Association so that's maybe a key point in terms of how this differed from the European Super League, which very much went against the grain of the, the governing bodies, the FA was on board with this. And it operated as a standalone competition, and, it's, and it still does to this day. And there were 22 founding members of the Premier League. I'll, I'll list them just because it's quite interesting. Some of the names you would expect, others maybe not so much. So Arsenal, Aston Villa, Blackburn Rovers, Chelsea, Coventry City... Uh, Crystal Palace, Everton, Ipswich Town, Leeds United, Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Middlesbrough, Norwich City, Nottingham Forest, this is an interesting one, Oldham Athletic, Queen's Park Rangers, uh, the two Sheffield teams United on Wednesday, Southampton, Tottenham, and last but certainly not least, the artist formerly known as Wimbledon. (laughs) They were a founding member of the Premier League. You will notice there were 22, I said 22 founding members there. That was the, the, the initial size of the Premier League. That changed to 20 for, I think, 1995-96. And uh, two further teams were relegated from the division. And that 20-team league exists to this day. And you're right, Ryan, to mention the context of why it was created. It was a repackaging of English football. It was a consequence of of circumstance. The, The 80s had been very damaging for the reputation of English football. And I think the 1990 World Cup was also a, a key moment in the creation of the Premier League, or at least it was in the, in the minds of people who would go on to create the Premier League. The tournament was hosted, as people will know, was hosted by Italy. And at that time, Italy was seen as the the predominant football country. They had the best players. They had the the best teams, the most money, the biggest stadiums. And the exposure to all this at the World Cup got cogs turning in English football. And in particular, I've read and heard David Dean, who was the the, the England chairman, the, the Arsenal chairman at that time, speaking about watching that tournament. Obviously, England did very well at that tournament as well. And, and everyone in the UK watching that tournament and what he could learn from the way that um, Italy was doing things. He also spoke about going to a Miami Dolphins game and taking some elements of, of the American sporting experience. So all this was was packaged into the newly formed Premier League. There was a recognition that English football needed to be repackaged. There was also a recognition that English football was leaving a lot of money 
on the table. The, the creation of the Premier League can be traced back to a meeting between Greg Dyke, who would go on to become chairman of the FA, but at this time he was actually head of ITV, which is a, a terrestrial TV channel in the UK. He had a meeting with a number of big club chairmen, including David Dean of Arsenal, Martin Edwards of Manchester United, and ITV's involvement in that meeting is, is interesting and ironic, maybe even, because of the role that you mentioned there, Sky Sports. And you can't get away from Sky Sports when you're talking about the creation of, of the Premier League because the deal that they gave the Premier League as this new breakaway league, putting them at the core of their commercial strategy as a, as a new business who were looking to attract um, new co- consumers and new subscribers, that was the main difference between the Premier League, the old EFL uh, First Division, and even the, the other the other big European leagues. And that that difference still exists to this Mm -hmm. day. And that really is the thing, I think, to emphasize that difference because... Going back to the initial sort of lead up to the starting of the Premier League, uh, I think in 1986, first division clubs are getting around £25,000 per year from TV rights. It increases to £50,000 by 1986. For 1988, that's when the breakaway talks first begin. That's when that number really jumps. Uh, I think Football League, uh, the new deal is that clubs can keep 75% of the money rather than 50%. Suddenly, we're looking at £600,000 per year per club. But that still is seen as sort of small potatoes, especially with those big clubs who feel like they've put in more money. They have an established record of stability. And at this point, the league and the country itself is sort of holding them back while other leagues, other teams on the continent are starting to grow and have more money and have more resources. And so to me, that's the big thing with the Premier League is that they have more TV share of the TV revenue, but also they get to keep that share because they're not sharing nearly as much with uh, lower level uh, clubs in England. And that would be the main the other main differentiator for me is that then you have these Premier League clubs allowed to keep more of the pie and have a bigger pie at the same time. And that really puts them in a position to start having money. And that's where they still are now, where you have clubs that are getting relegated still making more than some of the top earners in the Bundesliga or other leagues around the world. Yeah, and it's probably important to note, guys, that the Premier League didn't come out of the box as a turnkey huge product in 1992. It's really built up in the decades since. I mean, we mentioned Wimbledon, my team. We were in the Premier League from the start until uh, the year 2000. And it just seems like a different era. Even though it was the Premier League back then, it doesn't feel like Wimbledon were a part of the behemoth that it is today. Um, Taylor, trivia mm-hmm. for you. In the first Premier League season... Can you guess how many foreign players were in the Premier League? I'm, I'm. Are we counting like Scottish players as foreign? No, sorry. I think it's non-British. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to guess not many, like ten. <laughs> it's thirteen. Thirteen <laughs> is the answer. Yeah. There really? you go. Yeah. Thirteen. Thirteen. I, I only had had an incl- inclination that that was the case because of knowing the Enfield rap and how so much of that is about. <laughs> Uh, all these people who don't know how to talk with a, like a Liverpoolian accent, but then so many of those people are from other cities in England, and they only mention like two people from outside of England, and that's where that's where maybe uh, it makes sense. I guess that number has changed a little bit nowadays with the number of, of foreign players playing in the league. Uh, and I and I think you're right though, Ryan, to call out how much different things were when they start. 
that we should add, and and uh, Graham already touched upon it. Uh, Graham, who is the, who is was it? Greg Dyke, who thought that he would he would yeah. be the one to benefit from all this. Uh, so yeah, he thinks ITV will get the rights to the Premier League, and that was sort of the expectation until in comes Rupert Murdoch with a three hundred and four million pound bid. Uh, and so for clubs who were getting six hundred thousand a year, and that was seen like a lot of money, uh, adding that up, you're still not coming close to that three hundred million uh, number. Really, not close at all. And so you can see right there how they're starting to then turn things around, have have more money where they can invest it. And you can see that in the way that transfer expenditures from that point on yeah. uh, really do just uh, increase. Uh, catastrophically is the wrong way to put it. But for some clubs, I guess it's catastrophically, those that are no longer in operation. Yeah, and and there yeah. is a there is a scenario. <laughs> shots fired there. Um, there's there is a scenario where the Premier League doesn't get past maybe two or three seasons because mm-hmm. for Sky to pay that amount of money for Murder to pay that amount of money, a lot of people thought he was crazy to do that, and this was almost a hail mary from Sky. They had been around, I think, at that point as a company for about two years. The initial plan was they were going to be all about. Uh, cinema and films that was that was the first thing that they wanted to do that was was how they were going to get subscribers and that plan didn't really work so football wasn't their initial plan they kind of um, arrived at, at football on a whim basically it was Rupert Murdoch after watching the the, the the 1990 World Cup I believe was kind of like yeah okay we'll just we'll spend big on football being our next big thing and had that not uh, worked out for Sky had Sky collapsed then you wonder what that would have done for the Premier League. The Premier League would have fallen flat on its face. Serie A would have maybe stayed as the predominant league and football's landscape would be very different today. It would indeed. As you mentioned, Graham, Serie A very much the top dog at the time the Premier League came around. And in, in the UK, certainly, that was the league you could pretty much only really watch on TV before the Premier League came around. And even after the Premier League, it was still a, um, it was on free-to-air TV as well. But that... Uh, sort of subsided to the dominance of the Premier League. So why don't we talk a bit about that journey? How exactly has the league, Taylor, grown both commercially and in terms of quality since its inception up until today? What kind of trends have we seen? Was there a point where we suddenly thought, this is the best league in the world. It's a very difficult question because I don't think we can say, oh, it was April 30, 2004, of course. But I mean, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and on the day we're recording this in late August of 2022, I mean, Uli Hunas has a quote today talking about how it's not the best league in the world, the Premier League. It's just the league that has the most money. And that's the only thing that sets it apart. So Same there's thing. still some debate about <laughs> is it the best league in the world? But I think undoubtedly it is the richest league in the world. And I think when you have that amount of money on hand, it's hard to not become a better league for it because you don't have as many stability issues or solvency issues as you might elsewhere in other leagues. And I think TV is just such a huge part of that. We've already talked about it a little bit, but how much money clubs are able to get and the way they end up splitting, uh, at least that initial deal, domestic broadcast revenues, 50% equally shared, uh, 25% based on match broadcast, 25% based on league table finish. So even if you're a smaller club who isn't on TV that often, even if you're only finishing 17th or 18th, you still get a huge chunk of money uh, and an even huger chunk of money when compared to other teams in similar positions in other leagues. In Spain, Barcelona, Real Madrid getting a massive share of that TV revenue, four times larger than the smaller clubs. Whereas in England, there's still a disparity, but it's not nearly to that level. 
And I also think when you have that initial deal uh, with Sky coming in, it sets the stage for, well, then we can sell TV broadcast rights to other subscription services in other countries. And that's exactly what starts to happen. And then international broadcast rights come into the equation. And now you've got money coming in from other countries, huge amounts of money coming in from other countries to broadcast those games. And I think it, it has to be said a big advantage there would be that it's the English Premier League. They're speaking English. It's going to be covered by English-speaking people. And when you have like 1.5 billion people speaking English as their primary language or as a primary language, that is going to enhance the appeal when you have the United States and Canada, like the interest in soccer also exploding. I think there's going to be a natural look towards leagues where they can understand what's happening, where the coverage is easier to get your head around and easier to understand. And, And I think those two go hand in hand in making the Premier League be this entity that has international eyes on it, it has global eyes on it, and if it has global eyes on it, if these clubs are institutions that you know are going to be around and you know will have millions of built-in supporters, then sponsorship money is going to follow directly after that. Because now if you've got a club with a blank jersey, but every weekend they've got millions, if not billions of eyes on them, that's really good advertising spots right away. And so I think... TV revenue leads to advertising and commercial revenue, leads to foreign owners coming in because they want to benefit from that, leads to foreign owners coming in to buy clubs because they want to be perceived as being of that stature. And now there's just money everywhere. Yeah, Let, let's not kid ourselves about why this, this shift happened. It, it was money. And I mm-hmm. think it took a little while for that money to start to appear on the pitch. If anyone has seen the Sky Sports commercial for the first season of the Premier League. It is hilarious, not just because it's hilariously dated now, but also because there's this disconnect between the whole idea was, as I said at the top of the show, to repackage English football, make it glamorous, make it sexy. And so they've got, they're trying to paint these players as elite, you know, top level athletes in peak condition, and there it's all. It, there's an upbeat pop track over the top of it, and they've got a player turning up in a red Porsche sports car, and yet the players that are in that commercial don't quite match up to that image yet. So there's like Bruce Grobelar, or there's like Ooh, Vinnie Jones for yeah. Wimbledon, and so there's a disconnect there. And if you were to ask me where the tipping point is for the Premier League, it's a, a two three year period between, if I had to estimate, between ninety five and ninety eight. Because before then, the best European players would stay in Serie A. They would play in, some of them even would play in in France at the time. Marseille were a big team around then. They played in Germany and they played in Spain. But around that time, you had um, Newcastle United. I know this isn't a foreigner, but they pay pay a a world record fee to sign Alan Shearer in 1996. When there was interest from Real Madrid, he could have gone to Real Madrid or Manchester United. Players like Dennis Bergkamp, Patrick Vieira, Thierry Henry, they joined Arsenal. You had Gianluca Viala, uh, Viali uh, signing for Chelsea. And that all happened in the space of two or three years in, in the mid to late 90s. So if I had to guess where that tipping point is, that is where things really start to change and you start to get a cosmopolitan, multi- multicultural product that is exactly what the Premier League wanted back when they started in 92. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to point to, Graham. The Arsenal and Chelsea foreign legions, if you will, the the sort of quality and calibre of players they brought in in the late 90s. And for me, I think in terms of sort of the commercial heft of the Premier League, it really hit me. I can very clearly remember the 2007-2008 Champions League final, 2008 Champions League final. I watched it in Thailand. I think it was in Bangkok. And it was 3am on a Thursday morning. 
and it was the champ- it was the one where it was Chelsea Man United with the penalty shootout and John mm-hmm. Terry in tears. Um, and it wasn't just British expats in this giant bar I was in. It was, you know, all the locals. It was packed out with nationals from all over the world. And it sort of hit me that, yeah, this is... The, the world cares about this league. It's not just the UK. And it, it, that, that kind of dawned on me then. Maybe that's just a very personal anecdote. But um, that wouldn't have happened 10 years previously, I think. Yeah, and I, I had that similar experience. And maybe I was naive because I was a little bit younger. But also the... the um, the, the the soccer landscape in the US 10 years ago was very different. And I whenever I would go over on holiday, I would find a bar, a sports bar, to watch any Premier League games that were happening on any given day. And, and similar to you, Ryan, that it wouldn't be... Obviously, there would be some British expats there, but there'd be loads more Americans than, than Brits or Europeans. And as I say, maybe I was, na- I was naive and that had been the case for a while, but that was when it dawned on me, kind of the Premier League is, is not just... Britain's favourite pastime. It is very popular all around the world. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And we'll talk more about that after this break. We're going to talk about the Premier League, maybe the advantages it has over other leagues, uh, the muscle it still flexes, and its future. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to Soccer 101. We are talking about the Premier League and the behemoth that it is. Um, Graham, let's talk about what the Premier League actually has. Why is it so big? We know it's money, but what what advantages does it have? And why haven't other leagues copied it successfully? Why hasn't Serie A done the same thing with the same kind of financial might? Is it just the first person that got to the finish line, got got the title here? Or um, could other leagues potentially copy what the Premier League have done? Or is it is it one of a kind? I, th- I think now it would it would be difficult for the for the, the the difference to be made up by another league. I think we'll come on to that a little bit later on on, on the show. But in terms of, is it just because the Premier League got there first? A, a little bit. They were one of the yeah. first leagues to recognise the shift in the television model and the broadcast model, and they jumped on the, the satellite TV revolution and it worked out for them and that gave them an advantage and that has given them a, an advantage ever ever since. And um, if you look at some of the, the, the deals today, the Premier League as a, as a collective, I think, takes over double what the second most lucrative league in terms of TV broadcast money takes in per season. The Premier League is around about 3.6 billion euros per season. La Liga, I believe, is around about 1.6 billion per season. And obviously you have massive clubs in La Liga, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, Real Madrid, even teams like Valencia, Atletico Bilbao. So it's not it's not really down to the size of the clubs per se. It's just that the, the Premier League has been so effective at marketing itself. And that was what I was going to come on to was, yes, they were first, but they were they were also best in terms of repackaging the product, marketing the, the game, exploring other markets. They're one of the, I think they were the first football league to, to really do that, to go into to the markets in Asia, certainly to go into the markets in, in, in America and really make a, a dent there as well. And in the start, in the 90s, they were just willing to try new things. Ryan, you mentioned that the, the hybrid cheerleaders, they didn't stay. But other ideas like Monday Night Football did stay. And even to this day, I think that the Premier League is just a lot better than other leagues at, at, at marketing itself. 
and it might it'll take a, another fundamental shift in just things that go beyond football, the broadcast yeah. model. And I'm going to come on to that a little bit later on. It'll take that sort of shift for things to change, I believe. I also think the money on offer, the kind of changing dynamic of bringing back the best players, but then also bringing in foreign players, the Premier League has to some extent been able to evolve more easily than other leagues. I think, again, because of that money, because there's this idea that if you're bringing in players from all these different backgrounds, it's tougher to have one sort of style that dominates. And I think for the longest time, English football was seen as the most passionate, which I think is a nice way of saying the most physical, the most intense, the one where you're going to get a reducer challenge and it's not even going to be a booking, let alone a card. And I think that has changed. I look at somebody like Arsene Wenger coming in in 1996 as being instrumental in that change of changing the way people eat, the drinking culture, the physical fitness requirements. And I think there's slowly more of an emphasis on playing more like uh, aesthetically pleasing football. I think it takes time, but I think there are so many teams that start to embrace that, that even, Graham, to your point, in, in 2010, you still have plenty of clubs that are all about kicking it long, route one, out-muscling you, uh, Stoke City being the prime example of that. And I look at the current Premier League uh, table, I, I don't know which team I would point to as being the most just out-and-out brutal tactics. They're going to knock you around. It's going to be really difficult because you may come away with bruises everywhere. Like, maybe that's Leeds, but even there, that's a Leeds team that are previously coached by Marcelo Bielsa and have so many good attacking players, and it's a high-intensity system. I think not having this one style that most teams tend to reflect, I think, also has helped the Premier League reach new levels. Yeah, and I think the Premier League has had an an unashamed focus on just producing the best product. And I'll, I'll, I will mm-hmm. explain what I mean by that. If you go to the Bundesliga, there's a large focus on we are creating young German homegrown players for the German national team. You go to Italy and it's this is Italy's league for Italians. You look, you look at how many Italian players play in Serie A. It certainly used to be the case about 10 years ago that if you were a top, a high-profile Italian player, you just didn't leave Serie A. You just bounced around the clubs, the top clubs, if you were one of the national team players. And you look at the Premier League, and maybe the things have changed slightly in recent years where there is a little bit more focus on producing homegrown players for the national team. But for a long time in the Premier League's existence, that just was not a consideration at all. It was just about signing the best players possible to attract the biggest crowds and to produce the biggest teams. And maybe that had a detrimental effect effect on the England national team. In fact, I would say it definitely did for a period. But in terms of the Premier League's own growth and the clubs within the Premier League's growth, it was very beneficial. Yeah, I mean, how many clubs in the league right now have an English owner? Uh, I know there are a few. There's not many. Uh, and so I think if you've got foreign owners, there's like naturally going to be less of an emphasis on, well, we want these players to go on to play for the England national team. I don't think that's anywhere near a priority, Graham. I think that's a great point to make because there for the longest time was there that conversation about how if the Premier League is so good, why aren't more Premier League teams winning the Champions League and why isn't England better? And I think the England one is more easily explained because if you don't have teams that are really prioritizing that or short before the like homegrown player rules come into effect of the squad limitations... I think there's just not as much of a need and, and foreign owners aren't going to care nearly as much about England being good as they are about their team and the league that that team plays in being good. And in terms of the product, Taylor, we have to consider the 
competitive nature of the Premier League as well. There's mm-hmm. been plenty of different winners. It's not like a, there's a duopoly in Spain, obviously, where basically only two teams are going to win. There's only two or three teams who are going to win in Italy. There's only one that's going to win in France. Yeah. And in the Premier League, you have you had a big four, and now you have a big six. And that must help from term, in terms of attracting fans and in terms of making it a compelling product too. Yeah. Because I don't, I ultimately, I don't think people want parody. And we've talked about this many times on the show. I think people like the idea of parody. But even in most American leagues where that is like parody is the rule, you still have your giants. You still have the Patriots for a good long while. In baseball, it's the Yankees and then the Red Sox or maybe the Dodgers. But you've got huge market teams that are always going to be seen as the giants, even if everyone is theoretically spending the same or there's taxes on teams who spend too much, you need to have those teams that can stand out that you know are going to be appointment TV. I feel like in most sports, if you've got a New York team playing an L.A. team, you're going get, to get a pretty good market share that way. And I think England of the big leagues in Europe has the best sort of record on that front. I don't know if you have a whole wealth of teams winning the title, but you've got enough big clubs that can all theoretically win it that you have interest there, but then you still have interest in the very good mid-table teams pushing for European places. You've got very good teams in the relegation battle, so you end up getting interest across the board, whereas to your point in the Bundesliga, you've got Bayern, Bayern, and Bayern, and when Bayern weren't dominant... It, aside from that period when Dortmund were doing really interesting things under Klopp and then Tuchel, the perception was basically then, oh, the league is bad because Bayern are bad and therefore the whole league is bad. In France, it's PSG. It was Lyon before them, but PSG have won eight of the last ten. Spain, Barca, Real Madrid, and Atleti to some extent. The last time one of those three wasn't on top was the 2003-2004 season when Valencia won it. Italy, it's been Juve until very recently, but even since 2001, it's only been Inter, Milan, or Juventus winning the title in Serie A. So you're getting the same clubs over and over and over again. Premier League, over that same chunk of time, you've got Man United, you've got Arsenal, you've got Man City, Chelsea, Liverpool, and Leicester. And Leicester, I think, is the biggest one because though it's an outlier and though we're moving further and further away from Leicester looking like they're going to win the Premier League it is still the one you point to as a team that no one was expecting to win ended up winning the league when is the last time that happened in another big league I cannot remember it and so I think Leicester is one of the most important parts in the modern Premier League because they keep that idea that, hey, anybody could theoretically win it alive, even if we know it's going to be one of a few teams. You still have that air of competitiveness that I think is so important in continuing to pull people in and giving you compelling narratives for a season. All right, so the Premier League has the best marketing, has the most money, has a very compelling product. It has many of the best players. I suppose the question, Graham, is something we touched on earlier. Does it have an unassailable lead over other leagues? Are there any other leagues who could catch it? Are there any other leagues who are trying to catch it, I suppose, is the question. Yeah, it it has such a financial advantage over every other league in the world at this point that I think it would would take, if I'm to envisage a scenario, it would take someone making a borderline reckless gamble on the growth of another league, much like Rupert Murdoch did with the Premier League. I think that's what it would take for another league (laughs) to rise to the same level. La Liga has been the most proactive in terms of trying to close the gap on the Premier League. They've placed a, a greater emphasis on foreign markets. They've played classicals at specific times to appeal to China. I remember that personally because the time was three o'clock on a 
Saturday in the UK when there is a, a TV blackout. And I always remember when cla- there was a couple hmm. of classicals that weren't shown on British TV. But the reason that they had them at those time was that was peak time in, in, in China. They've proposed uh, playing games in Miami and they've struck bigger TV deals for, for TV rights in the States. But, but these are markets where the Premier League still has a huge advantage over those other leagues and specifically over La Liga. The Premier League receives $475 million a season from NBC in the US alone. La Liga receives $175 million a season. And that's that's pretty good compared to the other leagues. Serie A is down at about $30 million a season. Eh, sorry, Serie A is $60 million. The Bundesliga is at uh, $30 million a season. So La Liga comparatively is actually doing a pretty good job on that front, but it's still nowhere near what the Premier League is getting. The other scenario that could, and I referenced this uh, slightly earlier on, the other scenario that could shake things up is a shift in broadcast habits. And that that is already happening. So the problem with tying yourself to a satellite broadcaster, as the Premier League has with with Sky, and that, that tie is still very strong to this day, the problem with that is you're tying yourself to the success or failure of that broadcaster, or maybe more pertinent is you're tying yourself to the success or failure of that medium. So the satellite broadcast mo- model is under serious threat from, from streamers and cord cutters, certainly in the USA at the moment, but that trend is starting to reach the UK as well. And, and the Premier League, I think you can tell, is pretty nervous about this. You can tell they're nervous because... They've create, they recently created a third package of matches in the UK in the last rights negotiations and gave them to Amazon Prime for a knockdown price. And that was basically to experiment with how, with, with streamers to essentially dip their toe into that, into, into that pool. And it's, it is an experiment and some experts think it's the Premier League preparing to make a more fundamental shift into streaming. They've experimented with a, a Premier League TV streaming model. I think that's in Singapore that that exists. So you sign up to Premier League TV and that's how you watch the, the Premier League in Singapore. So that's another exper- experiment. And, and in the UK in particular, the Premier League is still quite an old fashioned product in terms of not every match is broadcast. Far from it, actually. Most matches are not broadcast. You still have the 3pm TV blackout on, on a Saturday. So the Premier League has a decision with those shifting broadcast habits and the, and the habits of consumers about whether to stick with the, the tried and tested model or maybe break all that apart to stay at the forefront. And of course, if you do that, it's a risk. You're shaking the snow globe and another league could feasibly do streaming better. And that's maybe where the ground could be made up. Yeah. And Taylor, I think there might be one other scenario that we haven't discussed yet. If we're asking the question of can the Premier League ever be caught as the best league in the world? Um, it is the elephant in the room we haven't discussed. And it's something we have seen creep up. Maybe last year, was it? I'm going to say European Super League. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the only product that could potentially if it is introduced in uh, the right way, which inevitably will be at some point, is that the one that could take the crown from the Premier League? Yes, I think so. Uh, To the extent that uh, having researched this episode, I started to feel like the Super League was sort of a very smart, like semi-con job by other clubs to get British clubs to English clubs to jump ship. Because I don't, I feel like the Premier League itself is already sort of becoming a Super League with that amount of money that they do have. And we would expect it continue to to grow. I hear what Graham says about uh, subscriptions and satellites and cord cutting. But I think I would have also said, like, maybe a global pandemic when they can't have fans in the stadiums would show you how little money they actually have. And that would be the thing to bring them back down to earth. And instead, here we are. 
at time of recording, Premier League clubs are spending more than everyone else, significantly more than everyone else. So I think short of a drastic restructuring that basically guarantees certain clubs a huge amount of money without relegation, and then you could see them jumping ship, I don't know how else you catch this, just because I think the Premier League have had the leg up they've had. And at this point, it's only maybe like greed and self-implosion could be the thing that brings it about. If you had, yeah. like, I don't know, ownership groups just decide, you know what, never mind, this isn't for us. But again, we've already seen that happen with Chelsea and Abramovich being forced to sell. But in comes Todd Bowley, Chelsea continuing to spend and be the club that they were. So I don't really know how how anybody can can theoretically catch them short of the only minor thing I would say, because we've only talked about the positives of the Premier League. This is slightly more nuanced and less likely to have an impact, but because there's so much less money being shared with lower levels in England, there's still some being shared, but not nearly as much as there would be otherwise. Uh, When I did an episode about the start of the Premier League, the number I found uh, in 2004, so only 12 years after the start of the Premier League in England, 36 of the 72 football league clubs that were around at that time were insolvent or in administration or in receivership. So you do have lower level teams, I think, really struggling because there isn't as much money. There's not as much glamour to owning a League One or League Two uh, club, unless maybe you're fan owned or something like that. So short of a shift in which there was a return to, you know what, you all have so much money, you have to share now. We're going to change things. The FA is making it a rule. FIFA is making it a rule. Who knows? That's the only thing I could see is some sort of legislation that requires them to share their money more evenly across all leagues. I think outside of that regulation, it's the Super League is the one that could potentially catch them or overtake them. Yeah, the, the Premier League needs to make, I think the Premier League needs to make some bad decisions for others to, to catch them up. And that, that, is, that could happen. Basically, that was one of my takeaways from the Super League was, why, why are these English clubs willing to kill their golden goose to allow the other clubs that they have such a financial advantage over them to catch up to their level? And you're right, Taylor, that, 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 was, that felt like one of the guiding motivations, certainly for teams like Barcelona and Real Madrid and the Italian teams, was to get on a level with the Premier League clubs. You would be relying on those same Premier League clubs making some bad decisions to get on board with another European Super League. Because, as you say, Taylor, the Premier League at this point is the Super League. Yep. Like Those clubs at the bottom, you know, Fulham signing Yao Polina for £20 million from Sporting Lisbon and paying him £150,000 a week. Nottingham Forest spending more money than any other club in Europe besides Barcelona and Chelsea like that is the sign that the Premier League is already the Super League I mean looking at this Joe uh when again when we're recording this when we did a show earlier Joe talked a little bit about the amount of money being spent by Premier League clubs this window alone it's kind of nuts that in the top 25 the teams that have spent the most money in the world 14 of them are Premier League clubs if you expand that to the top 50 Bournemouth uh is coming in at 50th so that makes it 19 uh Premier League clubs are in the top 50 the only one who isn't would be Leicester City because they haven't spent any money but i mean that 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 is the bottom tier club who's just been promoted like spending more than many other very good teams in many other leagues. They've spent more than Atletico have Bournemouth. They've spent more than Fenerbahce, Eintracht Frankfurt, uh, Galatasaray, Lille, Bologna, Fiorentina. Uh, the list goes on Celtic in there too. I mean, 
It's not those aren't the giants, but then when you move towards the top spenders, it's it's just insane to see how Leeds have outspent Juventus or Ajax or Borussia Dortmund uh, or Real Madrid. Even it's just the amount of money that teams are able to spend and keep spending really does just keep that chasm growing. Yeah, well, perhaps some bad decisions are on the horizon then for the Premier League because uh, empires do end at some point. The British and the Romans can certainly attest and to Rumble that. Yeah, indeed. Thank you, Graham. Um, <laughs> but, but, but that's a, a jolly good uh, Premier League discussion. Listener, you've made some good decisions by sticking with us in this episode. Thank you very much. Taylor oh, Rockwell, you, thank you very yes, much. Ryan. For- Sorry about that. I will say the only other thing that I could see, and this would be much more organic, much slower, but it's from this past weekend. The only thing that I could see changing things for the Premier League is this past weekend we had Newcastle play Man City. And initially, in my notes for that game, I had it as being almost sort of nice to not have a bias against one of those teams. Because if it's Man City playing Leicester, I'm automatically sort of on Leicester's side. That's not even my Manchester United bias. That's just a, you have a club that doesn't have the ownership. They still have a lot of money behind them, but they don't have that oil state money. Same thing if Newcastle is playing Crystal Palace. I'm going to lean Palace, but when two of those teams play each other... It removes some of that, but at the same time, that also makes me feel very uncomfortable. That it's like, oh, well, they're equally bad, so that cancels out. I guess I can just watch the product on the field. And I could see a scenario in which, at a certain point, every team, or most every team in the Premier League, is owned by a very obviously disreputable ownership group, and that could turn the tide. I could see public interest turning off if it is just... Oh, it's this sovereign wealth fund playing this sovereign wealth fund where they have inconceivable amounts of money. I'm going to go watch the Bundesliga and 50 plus one. Maybe that is the only way it could change. And even there, that's organic and very slow. And I think requires a lot of people to feel dissatisfied with the product. You you have more faith in people than I do, yeah. <laughs> because people will inevitably be like, "Yeah, this is bad." Ooh, Kelly Mbappe is playing for uh... <laughs> for Bournemouth. Yeah, great. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, maybe the European Sports Washing League is what finally uh, takes over the world, Taylor. We never know. We never know. Um, I'm going to try and wrap up right, the episode though. again, unless yeah. you've got any more points, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, five more things, real quick. No, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> In that case, Mr. Rocco, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, my friend, and apologies for my many interruptions. Of course, we're here to hear you speak, Tay-Tay. That's what we're all about. All good. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And listener, thank you again for joining us on this Intrepid Soccer 101 journey. We'll be back on the feed with another one shortly. But for now, catch you later. 